Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Okay, good evening, everybody, um, and welcome to LSE um, for this event, 100 Years of the Republic of Turkey, Changing Ideas and Modernity. Um, and um, my name is Jonathan Hopkin. I'm a professor in the European Institute and in the Department of Government here at LSE. And it's a real pleasure for me to be uh, uh, presenting, chairing this event. Um, and uh, this event is hosted by uh, Com Contemporary Turkish Studies and the European Institute. So before I introduce uh, our speakers, um, can I make a few um, brief technical announcements before we get started? So first of all, please switch off your phones so there is no disruption of, of the event. Um, this event will be recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast. Uh, for those of you following uh, and using Twitter, uh, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE Turkey. Nice and intuitive. Um, as usual, there's going to be a chance for you to put questions to our panelists. We're going to have a first round. Each of the panelists will speak for around 10 minutes, and then the, we will open it up to the audience for Q&A. Um, so for those of you joining online, uh, you can submit questions via the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. And please include, if possible, your name and affiliation so we know who you are. Um, and for those of you here in the room, um, I'll open up the floor for questions. Please raise your hands uh, and be patient. And bear in mind, it's very difficult for me to always see who had their hands up first. And I'll try and be as balanced as possible in calling on people uh, to speak. And um, we will have a roving microphone. So when I call on you to ask your questions, please wait a second for that microphone to reach you. Otherwise, um, we won't be able to capture, capture your, your voice. Um, and again, let us know your name and affiliation, please. So I'll try and get a, a representative range of questions from both the online audience and the audience here, here in the room. So uh, moving on to uh, the event this evening, I'm very pleased to be welcoming our prominent speakers who are going to appraise 100 years of the Turkish Republic, taking stock of changing ideas of modernity, progress, and westernization in society, foreign policy, literature, and politics. So our first speaker will be my colleague, uh, Yaprak Gursoy, uh, who is professor and chair of contemporary Turkish studies in the European Institute at LSE, her research uh, interests include regime change, democratization, and emotions and memory in European politics and collective identity. Uh, next, we will have Shunaz Gilmaz, who is Professor of International Relations at Koch University. She also serves as Dean of, of the College of Administrative Sciences and Economics and the Director of Graduate School of Business. Sounds like you have a lot of jobs. <laughs> <laughs> and her research expertise includes Turkish foreign policy, relations with the EU, the US, and NATO, energy politics, and sustainability. Um, our third speaker is Laurent Mignon, who is professor of Turkish literature at the University of Oxford and fellow of St. Anthony's College. Uh, his research focuses on the minor literatures of the Ottoman Empire and the Turkish Republic, and in particular, Jewish literatures. And the fourth speaker, our final speaker on, on my right, Farouk Biertek, is Emeritus Professor of Sociology 
at Bokazici University. I should have asked for tips on how to pronounce that before I started. Um, his main areas of interest include political and historical sociology, modernity, and citizenship. Um, so yeah, um, without further ado, um, I'd like to invite Yaprag to start. Speakers have 10 minutes. I will yell at you if you go, go too much over that. Uh, and then in the meantime, please be thinking about questions you, you might want to pose. And uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to hearing about all of this. I know very little about Turkey. I have no Turkish expertise. Expertise. My only connection is that my football club, Hull City, is, now has a Turkish owner. <laughs> <laughs> so. that, that's a pretty strong uh, connection, it's, uh, Jonathan. It, yeah? And uh, he's spending a lot of money, so it's, 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 it's all <laughs> good. good. Yeah. Okay, Yaprak, over to you. Thank you very much for that introduction, and thank you all for coming. Um, it's really nice to see all these uh, faces, some familiar faces, uh, students, uh, colleagues from Turkey, colleagues from the UK and uh, also um, others who are interested, obviously, in Turkey. As Jonathan said, we are here to appraise 100 years of the Turkish uh, Republic. Our main goal is to discuss how Turkey has evolved um, since 1923 and um, how the ideals of modernization, westernization, and progress have changed or remained the same. Of course, it's very difficult uh, to summarize 100 years in 10 minutes. But it is also even more difficult now in the current context to talk about Turkish politics, which is what I was supposed to do on this panel. In light of the devastating earthquakes um, in Kahramanmaraş almost exactly one month ago. So instead of making an attempt to summarize 100 years, what I wanted to do um, today was to remind us of the spirit of 1923 and what lessons Turkey can take uh, from those years. Although circumstances have changed quite significantly, I believe that some of the ideals uh, that guided the Republic can still inspire us today. Perhaps uh, they are even more meaningful now because of the um, earthquakes. When talking about these ideals, I'm not going to talk about the cliché ideologies of secularism, nationalism, and republicanism. These ideologies, I think, have polarized uh, Turkey. Uh, what I want to focus on um, is the deeper and often forgotten ideals of reformism and belief in the idea of progress, evolution, and the possibility of renewal. As you all know, when the Turkish Republic was founded, in October 1923, it was built on the ruins of the Ottoman Empire. The empire was in economic and military decline. It faced European colonization and annexation. At the end of the First World War, according to rough estimates, one-fifth of the population in what is now modern Turkey was lost. What was once a pluralistic, multilingual and multi-ethnic empire society was also, for the most part, wiped out. There is no doubt that the 20-year period that started with the Balkan Wars in 1912 was one of devastation, tragedy, and pain. Even though in collective memory we think about those years in glorified terms, um, for those who lived through the experience, these were decades that, that could only be described as traumatic. The Turkish nation was built on this experience of collective trauma. 
And Turkey is not an exception here. Almost all nation states were formed through wars. So Turkey as well, like many nations, drew its borders through the pain of loss of land, loss of neighbors, families, and sons. Again, like all nations, these losses were made meaningful through a new narrative. That narrative emphasized the suffering of the common people, but glorified their sacrifices for a better future. The narrative also stressed, stressed betrayal, because betrayal is actually part of collective trauma. Without the feeling of betrayal, you cannot express—you uh, 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 cannot ex uh, you cannot live collective trauma. So the stress of betrayal was by the subline port, how it decided to enter and lose wars, and then how it agreed to parcel out Anatolian lands to European powers through the Sev Treaty. Now, in academic, in, uh, academic literature, we refer to the um, experience of the Sev uh, Treaty as the memory uh, of a syndrome. It is the Sev syndrome, a condition of being in constant fear, the image of being surrounded by enemies, and an intense feeling of mistrust to the international community. But the Sev syndrome is not only about anxiety towards outsiders leading to ultranationalism, it is also a sense of suspicion of one another to the community people live in and a suspicion toward the state. The possibility that one could be sold out by those who were supposed to provide security and protection. So this is a constant dilemma. There is love for the nation, there is love for the state, an aspiration to have Western life standards, at least in terms of wealth, but there is also disdain, fear, and distrust of the same nation, of the same state, and the West. These are negative emotions contained in the memorialization of the birth of the Turkish Republic. They permeate Turkish collective identity. However, there are also positive emotions that we tend to forget. As I have argued in a recent paper and talked about in uh, other panels and conferences, so you might have heard me saying this uh, before, but I still find it quite interesting that there is general agreement on the narrative of the Gallipoli campaign, which was fought during the First World War in 1915. The spirit of Gallipoli and its descriptions in public have not changed much over the years. And this is despite increasing polarization over the memory of other events and issues. Setting aside the hyperbolic um, glorification of the victory, in the narratives, there is a clear sense of compassion and finding strength in standing together and in solidarity. The Gallipoli uh, spirit is described by politicians from the 1950s onward, if you look at the newspaper archives, uh, and politicians coming from completely different ideological backgrounds, statesmen coming from different backgrounds. In, um, in culture as well, um, so in public culture, in novels, in films, as we talked about um, actually uh, yesterday in another lecture, the Gallipoli uh, spirit is described as people coming together 
from all over Anatolia and from the remote areas of uh, the Ottoman Empire, witnessing their power and experiencing collective consciousness. The battle is almost always remembered as a battle where friendship won, when enemies and opposing sides showed compassion, clemency, and respect to one another. So this is how the Turkish Republic was built. It was constituted through a strong sense of progress and renewal and ideals of solidarity despite differences. It was also built on compassion and clemency toward outsiders, even enemies. Comparing 1923 to 2023, of course many things have changed, but some things are also the same. There is no doubt that Turkey is experiencing another, a different kind of calamity, this time brought on by a natural disaster. In early February, due to two earthquakes of 7.6 and 7.7 magnitude, according to official numbers, nearly 50,000 people died and millions have been displaced. We are looking at a region um, uh, where 15 million uh, people lived. The scale of the disaster is such that everyone has been directly or indirectly impacted. If you have a connection with Turkey, you have been impacted. So this is unlike um, anything that we've experienced before in the past 100 years. The portion of the population uh, is so big that no one is immune to the current disaster and its repercussions. Everyone is a witness of each other's trauma. It is collective trauma because people's feelings of shock, grief and pain were compounded once again by another sense of betrayal, suspicion and distrust. This is a sense of betrayal that is multifaceted and we need to recognize it, the multifaceted nature of the betrayal. It is betrayal by nature, by the freezing cold. It is by the earth that we walk on. It is the buildings that collapsed on families, children, babies while they were asleep. It is by rescue teams that were too late, by humanitarian organizations that failed to protect when they were needed the most. This is all very painful and it is all very gloomy. But there is also now a renewed sense of opportunity to rebuild society, to rebuild solidarity. Collective trauma such as, deed, such as these provide an opportunity to rethink communities, to rebuild cities, and find new ways of imagining shared lives. It is possible to observe this momentum of change. We talked about this um, in an online panel um, in, uh, at noontime today. So if you haven't watched it, uh, if you weren't there, I recommend that you find it later on when it becomes available to watch it or listen to it again. Because people have witnessed this type of solidarity. Uh, people ran uh, from different cities to help. People living abroad, us, we came together to help the affected regions. We collected donations, delivered supplies, opened our houses, and we opened our hearts. Besides the political sense of uh, or the practical sense of what we can do, there is definitely shared pain and collective grief. 
We cannot claim that these shared feelings will automatically translate into shared goals or even understandings of what is happening. There, there are going to be differences. We're not looking for um, uniformity. Okay? We are stronger with differences. But to assume that things will stay the same and that they're not going to change would be incongruent with Turkish history. 100 years from now, 2023 will be remembered as an important turning point. It is hard to predict what kind of change we are going to witness. Maybe it's going to happen in the medium term or in the long term. But if the spirit of 1923 is alive, and I think that it is alive, there will be a resurrection. The fear, suspicion, and distrust of the foundational memories led to polarization an ideological, religious, and ethnic conflict. But the feeling of solidarity, compassion, belonging, and hope survived. It is time to reconstitute the next 100 years based on these positive emotions of collective identity and with a strong sense of progress and renewal. Thank you. Thank you very much, Yeprek. Fantastic. And punctual. Uh, so over to Professor Yilmaz. Um, are there some slides going up there? Yeah. this event commemorating uh, the 100th anniversary of Republic of Turkey. Um, I also would like to start by uh, extending my deepest condolences for thousands of people who lost their lives, uh, including three very young promising students from our own uh, university, Koç University, and to all of those who were affected, traumatized in different ways uh, by the earthquake, which is in fact in both in Turkey and Syria, which will have, uh, as Yaprak has mentioned, uh, very long-lasting and enduring effects. I also would very sincerely thank uh, all of our uh, international partners, friends, um, who made us uh, feel their solidarity in these extremely difficult times. Now, uh, similar to Yaprak, who had the challenge of discussing issues of identity in 10 minutes, uh, my <laughs> difficult task uh, is to be talking about foreign policy uh, of approximately 100 years. Um, so I will just be able to provide you with some uh, insights, actually, and how it relates to the issues of modernity. Um, so at the time of the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, uh, I think the greatest challenge that the Turkish leaders faced was to create a nation-state out of a truncated empire in times of um, great devastation. Um, if we define, because our challenge is also not only to discuss foreign policy, but to discuss it within the context of modernity, 
so if we define modernity as the self-definition of a generation about its own technological innovation, governance, and socioeconomics, uh, how this has reflected in, in Turkish foreign policy was that um, modernity was very much equated uh, with, with westernization, despite the Serb syndrome um, that uh, Yaprak has eloquently described. So on the one hand, Turkey's national war of independence was primarily fought against the great European powers, but the path to moder modernity and progress was simultaneously seen uh, as through westernization. At the same time, again, as Jacques has mentioned, the country domestically was faced with the great challenge of rebuilding after a world war and a subsequent war of independence. In doing so, I think the great motto which was guiding the great motto of our uh, leader, Mustafa Kemal Atatürk, which I believe was very rightful strategy at the time, was peace in the country, peace in the world. And at this time of reconstruction, having good neighborly relations and trying to resolve international conflicts through multilateral means and diplomacy was seen as uh, the core action. And I believe whenever Turkey tried to refrain from getting engaged in regional conflicts, it yielded more positive results. Now, a very successful example was the Montreux Convention of 1936, where Turkey was able to regain control over the Straits and gain the authority to remilitarize the Straits entirely through diplomacy and through diplomatic means, utilizing the international context leading to the Second World War. Um, another example was um, the inclusion of Hatay Alexandretta in 1939 in a similar manner through diplomatic means uh, to Turkey. Another very striking example is how Turkey tried to maintain its neutrality, which was a very precarious neutrality, under tremendous pressure from allies and Axis powers, um, and how uh, this turned out to be, again, as Deringil has described, this active neutrality turned out to be a quite beneficial strategy for Turkey. In a similar manner, in, for instance, in the 1980s, during the Iran-Iraq War, Turkey, rather than siding with one or the other, again tried to maintain good neighborly relations with both, maintain trade, and emerged as, uh, in, a, in a way, um, again, economically not being harmed by the situation. Going in, back to the relation with the modernity, as I said, um, Modernity was very much seen uh, or equated with westernization, and on the one hand, this entailed uh, a desire and, and, and an active effort to be integrated into Western institutions, not only during Atatürk era, but definitely afterwards as well, with Turkey's integration to Council of Europe, later on the institutionalization of the Western alliance with integration to NATO, and also becoming a founding member of OECD. 
Um, also in the early Republican era, domestically, this was reflected in the form of reforms. And the westernizing reforms, uh, and we're on International Women's Day, and I congratulate everyone uh, for that, for their uh, recognition of that. So uh, the, in the reform process, again, thanks to the great visionary leadership, the, the designation of voting rights for women in 1930 and full universal suffrage for women was a very important uh, reform which also reflected very positively on Turkey's image as well. And this is um, an excerpt from uh, one of the main uh, newspapers of the time. Um, if we periodize Turkish foreign policy, uh, basically the early years from 1918 to 39 uh, could be seen as resistance and reconstruction. Uh, the period from 1939 to 45 was, as I mentioned to you before, a period of precarious neutrality. The Cold War era, with the exception of the Cyprus dispute primarily, was a period where Turkey pursued a more reactive foreign policy within a bipolar global context. Starting with the 1990s, uh, we moved on to the, as we moved on to the post-Cold War era, um, there were significant global shifts and regional conflicts, and from 2002 till present, we have uh, the AKP era of foreign policy. Um, in the post-World War II era, as I mentioned to you before, um, as opposed to the more passive reactive foreign policy during the post-Cold War period, in the immediate aftermath uh, of the Cold War, we see the first wave of foreign policy activism, which I believe was quite significant. And in that period, I particularly would like to recognize um, the efforts of late Ismail Jem and Papa Andreou, who, by the way, through earthquake diplomacy in the aftermath of the 1999 earthquakes, initiated uh, the Turkish-Greek rapprochement. Um, and there have been a second wave of foreign policy activism in the 2000s during the AKP era. Of course, it is very difficult to see AKP era as a continuum or as a monolith as well. While we have seen a stronger effort toward Europeanization in the earlier period, particularly from 2002 till 2005, unfortunately we have seen a significant shift away from that with a much heavier emphasis on Eurasianism, much stronger emphasis on the Middle East um, in the later era. Uh, when we view the current foreign policy dynamics, definitely Turkish-American relations, despite their very rocky nature, continue to be predominate uh, the Turkish foreign policy. Uh, S-400 issue continues to be one of the thorniest issues. Uh, as far as the relations with the European Union, um, unfortunately for some time, the full membership uh, process seems to be on the back burner. Uh, primarily, uh, migration, refugee issues dominate the agenda, as well as uh, prospects for, um, in a way, um, a renew or, or revisiting of the customs or upgrading of the customs union could be potentially on the agenda. 
As far as the Middle Eastern relations are concerned, um, still Syria is the key uh, focus area. And although uh, because of the dynamics in the, Eura in the Eurasian context, our attention has shifted from Syria, um, I think Idlib uh, still remains as a very dangerous powder cake uh, with a potential to explode in the region. Um, given, again, uh, Russia's war on Ukraine, um, geopolitics and energy politics uh, retain their significance as well as the significance of diversification. And of course, we will be increasingly talking about Eastern Mediterranean energy politics as well. And finally, over the past decades, um, Turkey's kind of long neglected foreign policy realm Turkey has also has been increasing uh, its ties with Asia, the emerging and uh, rising Asia, um, as well as uh, Africa as well. Now, as I'm coming closer to my conclusion, um, foreign policy is very much situated, especially in our globalized world, in the intersection of domestic politics and international context. Um, so I would like to conclude by saying that uh, Turkey has a critical role for the enhancement of peace and stability within its region as a pivotal regional power. However, it can play a more constructive and effective role um, if it can uh, fulfill three challenging tasks. Um, the first one relates to consolidating its rule of law deepening its democracy and strengthening its economy. Second, I think maintaining good neighborly relations and renewing the emphasis on enhancement of business ties is extremely important as well. And finally, operating within a predominantly European and transatlantic framework while pursuing a multilateral foreign policy with extensive Eurasian ties is also critical. In conclusion, in 2023, as we commemorate the 100th anniversary of the Turkish Republic, despite the overwhelming nature of the tragedy that we recently faced with the earthquakes and the multiple challenges that we need to face on all fronts, just like 100 years ago, we don't have the luxury of losing hope. On the contrary, we need to work even harder for building a better future for our region, for our country, and for the global community. And in doing so, to achieve this hardest task in this extremely difficult times, just like 100 years ago, Turkey's compass should be rationality, science, and the rule of law, and its motto should remain, peace in the country, peace in the world. Thank you. Thank you so much. Over to Lamont. Well, first of all, uh, I would like to, to thank Yaprak very much for the invitation and possibility to speak here tonight. I will start by saying that, that literature and, and its history never really fit into the borders of nation states. Um, the same goes for, for, for turning points in, in political history. Their significance for, for literary history is often limited. 
And so when I, I started to prepare my notes for this evening, I, I was wondering whether it would not make more sense for me to, 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 start by my, to start my discussion by referring to developments in the second half of the 19th century rather than to start it in 1923. It is in the 1850s, 1860s, that Turkish writing authors of the Ottoman realms started to engage with new literary genres, such as the novel, the short story, and drama. However, some might argue that such an approach too espoused the logic of political history by focusing on developments that took place in the wake of the Tanzimat reforms of 1839 and turned them into some kind of cutting point uh, dividing Turkish literature into old and new literature. The same critics of, of this approach would argue that the focus should be on poetry, whose course was uninterrupted for centuries. True, there were changes and transformations in form, in themes, and in sensitivities, especially in the 19th century. But the commonalities over the centuries warranted, warranted a reconsideration of the division of literature between new and old literature that is so dear to literary historians and critics. Now, I, for one, would have argued that it is not 1923, but perhaps 1928, and uh, the imposition of the Latin alphabet that should be considered as a turning point. Perhaps not so much for literature, uh, per se, but for the literary field as a whole. Think of the printing shops, the publishers. Think about the decisions that needed to be taken on what to transliterate and republish in, in, in the new in, and republish in the new alphabet, and, and, and what not. Think also about the visual aesthetics of the literary text. But keep also in mind that one of the major reasons for the alphabet reform was to facilitate the implementation of a rapid and efficient alphabetization campaign. In 1923, the alphabetization rate among uh, the Muslim population of the newly founded republic was about 10%, perhaps 15 if we are optimistic. So the, the rate would gradually increase after the reform, but not the least because of the implementation of, uh, of uh, new schooling and educational politics, policies as well. So 1928 was highly relevant for the literary field as a whole, because also of the increase of readers and of people who could write. But from a purely literary point of view, uh, 1928 would be as arbitrary as 1923. So for the sake of argument, let us have a look at a few texts written or published in 1923 and, and reflect on their significance for literary developments in the first 100 years of the Republic. Now, the first text, uh, first book I want to refer to is a, a building block of so-called liberation war literature, So it is Halide Edip Adavar's novel, Ateshtan Gömlek, Shirt of Flames, that was published in, in, in 1923 in Istanbul. Now, a short time after its publication, the novel became an international bestseller. Um, a German translation was published by Heinrich Donn in Vienna in 1923, 
with the title Das Flammenhemd. A year later, Halliday did publish her own English translation in New York. Interestingly, uh, another English translation was published in Lahore by uh, Mohamed Yaqub Khan in the 1930s. So the Turkish original, as some of you might know, was even turned into a film by Muhsin Aturul already in 1923, in, in the year of its publication. Now, to write such a, a, a canonic and iconic book is both a blessing and a curse. It is certainly a blessing for its numerous publishers over the decades, but it is a curse for its author, who is often reduced to that one single book, or perhaps to a few other books dealing with the liberation war and nationalist ideals. This is very unfortunate in the case of Halideh Edip, who was a pioneer in many ways. Her early works, such as the novel Handan, that explore the trials and tribulations of a young woman, can arguably be seen as an unshittery of great novels such as Adaleta Aulus, 1973, Olmeye Atmak, or so to, to Lie Down and, and, and Die, or Leila Abil's 1989, uh, To Have uh, A Strange Woman. Uh, Halide Edip's spiritual musings that we encounter in her writings on India, but especially in her memoirs, constitute surprising links with the contemporary fascination for alternative forms of religiosity and spiritual seeking that, that made quite an impact on the publishing world in the early 2000s. As for Halide Edip's bilingualism, she wrote both in Turkish and in English, they are an invitation to reflect on, on, on constructs such as national literature in an age when debates on Türkçe Edebiyat, so literature in Turkish versus Turkish literature, deeply divide the literary world. And uh, at a time when authors who are active in more than one language, such as Elif Shafak, but also Emine Sevgi Özdamar in Germany and, and others, force us to rethink the boundaries of national literatures. By the way, we should not forget that, that Turkey was and remains a, multi, a multilingual country in literary matters. Uh, think of novellas like Una Madre Cruella by Elia Carmona, which was published in Istanbul in 1930, or Un Curioso Ladron by Moïse Habib, published again in Istanbul in 1931. And these days, there are uh, thriving publishing houses despite all the difficulties uh, that, that publish and diffuse Kurdish literature in Turkey. Think of uh, Avesta publishers or of uh, Nubi Hash. So, yes, now the next text I would like to, to talk about uh, was not published in 1923, but written in 1923. It is actually a poem by Nazem Hikmet, a poet many of you will be familiar with, uh, entitled Makina Lashmakistyurum. So I want to turn into a machine. So inspired by Soviet futurism uh, and uh, a celebration of technology, the poem announced a new age. It was written in three verses at a time when the syllabic meter of the folk tradition had become the meter of choice of young poets. And the last masters of the classically inspired Arus prosody were, were still active. Here too it is important, however, not to reduce Nazem Hikmet to his avant-gardism. It is true that his younger self 
wish to, as the Soviet futurists, futurists would have said, throw the classics off the steamboat of modernity. Uh, Nazem Hikmet himself called it breaking the idols, Putlare Kuriorus, he said. But a decade after publishing his hymn to mechanization, Nazem Hikmet was very much involved in a process of reflection on how to engage with both the classical divan tradition, but also with folk poetry, and he had a deep desire to, made, uh, to, to merge his avant-gardist revolutionary sensitivity with the sounds and rhythms of learned and of folk poetry. His 1936, Sheikh Bedreddin Destane, so the epic of, of Sheikh Bedreddin, and his 1947, Ruba so which were quatrains that he had written in, in response to, to, to Rumi, are, are a product of, of this quest. Now, this question on how to engage with the Ottoman literary traditions uh, was to be a fundamental and, and remains a fundamental question for many poets uh, provoking rich and divisive debates, but uh, uh, also, and more importantly, uh, generating great poetry. Now, finally, the, the, la the third text that I wish to mention uh, is again a, a book published in 1923, but it is a slightly unusual one. Now, both Atesten Gömlek, uh, uh, Shirt of Flames, and Makina Lashmakis Theorem, I Want to Become a Machine, are major literary texts that are read and discussed in classrooms, but also in university auditoriums. They are modern classics. My third text, however, is a manual written by uh, a, 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 a woman author, Halide Nusret Zolutuna, who was a major poet, novelist, and playwright. In 1923, she published a book entitled Hanem Mektuplare, Women's Letters. It was a, a letter-writing manual addressed at women that aimed to present examples of letters written in Saade Türkçe, so in the, simple in the simple Turkish that was being promoted as the new language of literature by, by the nationalist intelligentsia. Now, despite, its often conservative sub uh, despite the often conservative subtext of the letter examples, the author nevertheless wished to enable women's empowerment in an age when literary um, when literacy quotes, especially among Muslim women, were very low. If today, in all literary genres, women authors play such a preponderant role in uh, Turkey, and here you just need to think, for example, I'm just mentioning my favorites here, uh, the novelist Latif Etekin, the poet Lale Muldur, but also the, 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 the late uh, playwright Biki Bahar, they, they, they have had a huge influence on, on their the, 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 the field, but if that could happen, this is also because authors of books such as Hanem Mektuplare helped to sensibilize their readers to, to women's writing. And I think this is a good moment to stop on the 8th of March, uh, which is International Women's Day. Thank you. Thank you, Long, and over to Professor Lutek. Uh, well, <coughs> I had imagined an audience which is slightly interested in Turkey, but not experts. I am sort of doing a bit of a 
horizontal run across history and starting 1923. I have four topics. Time, yes, all right. Number one, of course, today is 8th of March and I celebrate that. It's a very important day for me. I'm very happy that the previous two authors referred to it and I want to talk about the Republic in that context first. That is the greatest, greatest, I don't know what is greatest in life. It's a great achievement of the Republic. Now, remarkable is that Mustafa Kemal when he finished up at the Dardanelles in 1915, with his he was supposed to be the commander of the Syrian, of the Seventh Army in Syria. They spent three days traveling, you know, the time of travel at the time, as you might imagine, uh, to Syria with his aide camp. And the story is told to me by the grandson of Izzet Pasha, who was, uh, was uh, Mehmet Arda, very dear friend. We get together and talk about the Republic all the time. Uh, that on the day, three days on the road, all they talked about the position of women. And, and arguing, insisting that a society cannot advance if its woman is not advanced. If the women do not play a major role and educate it, those societies will never develop. So the idea of importance of role of women in society, already in Kemal and that circle of people, the Ottoman intellectuals, in 1915. Republic 1923, nine, two and a half years later, civil code was passed. That has a tremendous radical impact because it established the equality of women in every respect. Requesting divorce, getting a job, and most importantly, to get inheritance equal to man. Now that, I'm sure, violated a lot of interest within the family. Two and a half years ago, it was a major impact on our Islamic society, culturally, of course, and in practice. And in 1934, new constitution was written where women were to be elected and to have the vote to elect. 1935 parliament has 17 women parliamentary members. I don't know how that compares with the world, but I'm sure it is somewhere high in this in the scale of things. So that is my homage to George, to the Republic and the Women's Day. It's very important to appreciate that. That's my topic one. Easy. Second is the more the substantive issue, and my little book is about that, Modernity in the Republic. Now, let me take you back again to the Ottoman period. Ottoman intelligentsia was very well versed in French. My grandfather wrote his romantic letters to my grandmother in French, romantic letters. Uh, people sort of came very much at home in France because England was rather idiosyncratic in the Turkish vision. Too far away, a bit of ancien regime, and really did not feel anything familiar to it. France was the place, the French Revolution. My father had the 26 volumes of Michelet's French Revolution now still there. This was very, the mainstream. French is the example. France is where the future is. 
where enlightenment is embodied in France. And as you know, Paris, turn of the century, was hub of the universe. Any writer, painter, poet, wherever you go, you will go to Paris. Obviously, there was a lot happening in Bloomsbury around here, but it was inward looking and more aesthetic. Marvelous, I enjoy it very much, but did not have much impact on the rest of the world. So what is the modernity that I'm talking about? Obviously, the word modern is when I talk about modern, it's like the elephant and the seven blind man. I mean, you know, so many versions. For example, in England, if you, read, if you take a pick up a book on modern constitu constitution of modern England, it starts in 1485 with the Tudors. Very understandable in the English context. In France, it starts with Bonaparte which, of course, the British did not like very much. Actually, stopped them building the channel for 20 years, if you know, afraid that Bonaparte might come back one day <laughs> under, the, under the channel. It's better to keep the French out. Ferries are sufficient for communication. You don't want that direct line. You talk about me. I was there, I was still in 1960, and they're debating. You build the channel, what happens with the French? You're not going to come in. Anyway, so. But it was the fin de siècle France, the Troisième République. The Third Republic is the model for the construction of the Turkish Republic. It is close. They totally imitated and tried to practice it. Now, when I talk about the Third Republic, for Credo, in my definition of modernity, from Voltaire, Enlightenment, Kant from Germany, four principles that I identify. One, radical laicism practiced anti-clericalism in Paris. Not secularism, laicism. They are two different concepts. Not only different, rivalous concepts. Intellectually contrasting concepts. People in English language, because laicism still have ratted the unusable French root, they substitute all the American books, the press, laicism is secular, rubbish, very different things. We can discuss why. Number one, secular, universalism. Universalism is the motto of the Third Republic. I don't have enough time to elaborate more on that. Be <laughs> interesting because I, I just saw in an English uh, talk show with a gentleman named Trevor who was ridiculing the French idea of the French nation. Uh, he didn't understand what the French meant by citoyenneté. Anyway, the sorry, legal, rational, political authority, and belief in science exaggerated beliefs in science. This was an urban ideology. Modernity and the French modern is an urban ideology. Most widespread among the doctors, for example. Really, the scientific people were the doctors. My grandfather was a doctor, my father was a doctor, and they were all believed in the science. Causality. Now, of course, the critique of the modern comes today, and I think it's the end of the modern now, from the postmodern. And the critique of the Turkish Republic today, there's five volumes coming out now in the last 10 years. They are all coming out from the postmodern perspective. 
which is more preoccupied by tarot cards than the scientific approach of things. But that is my choice of words. Nonetheless, as Aprak says, modernity ideas of the Enlightenment continues, of course. One example, I love it, is that there was the Gazi Gezi, Gezi protest apparently 10 years ago. Can you imagine? Time flies. 10 years ago, I mean, you might know about the events, the students claiming the government is being tyrannical and all that. Next to the Gezi, you leave this, the square on a book wall, on a, on, a, on a huge wall, somebody wrote, How about a Derrida? Nobody got my point. <laughs> All right, Derrida, no, is that how we pronounce in English? The gentleman's name? Thank you very much. Somewhere on. How about a Derrida? Because of the steering movement. I will even venture to say, and everybody will oppose me, the, the events on Paris, I was there, very lucky. I've been lucky at every student movement. By chance, I end up being there, not by choice, but God's will. I was there in 1968, Paris. And I think it was a struggle between the Third Republic and the Fifth Republic. When you look at what the students were saying, what the youth were saying, they were, in a way, they were more archaic than if after the Gaullist Republic. The ideology of the Third and Enlightenment was the dominant theme of the critique of the Gaullist Fifth Republic. Still is the case. I mean, French are trying to patch up that problem. I mean, Macron is a wonderful diluted version of everything you can fit anywhere, you know. So, Turkish Republic was set up on that total immersion in the Third Republic. Now, Third Republic really starts, not 1870, as the books say. It starts with the Dreyfus Affair. Dreyfus Affair is the defining moment. Earlier, the Third Republic might go anywhere. But it is the Dreyfus Affair that mobilized Paris, mobilized the youth, Zola and the urban population, and the provincial students who wanted to be members of the Parisian uh, intelligentsia, they also very strongly Dreyfus are. It was brought people to Paris and built a Paris culture. And modernity is a Paris culture. And in fact, the place where it faced its wall is the village, traditional village, is the place where modernity had a struggle to penetrate. Uh, I don't think there's anybody of my age here, but if they had seen the films of Fernandel, who knows, who remembers Fernandel, anybody? Thank you very much. Uh, it is all about the priest, the priest and the teacher in the village. I don't know if it was Italy or France, I can't remember the location. It's was that Italy or France? Yes, uh, to the, closer to the Italian border. Mentimiglia, uh, around that, yeah. Very well. Uh, that is the story, the priest versus the teacher. And of course, the Republic found its wall on the village and in the town. It still remained the, the domain of Islamic cultural society. Heavy or light, whatever. Okay, I'll end there. 1950, just let me finish with that. In, I, take, I take the turning point of the Republic of 1950. Now, 1950 onwards is the Korean War. And the prices, economic, the economy of agriculture boomed. 
and political power shifted to the countryside. When money shifts, power shifts, often, not always. One more point that I have to say about women, though, no, it's too long, too late now. Uh, no, I can't stop myself. Give me one more minute, Chair. I have to worry. A, a friend of mine, Sabi Sayari, a dear friend of mine, went interviewed in you know, the ex-Prime Minister in uh, 19 years after the 1950, and asked him, why did you, why did you have elections? Remember that. After 25 years, the, the public had multi-party elections, very proper elections, which we are trying to hope that might happen, and we're really doubtful that will happen in Turkey today. State clear elections. And I said, why did, you, why did you have the elections? In America, there was a talk about American influence. It's said, not including America. With Mustafa Kemal and I, we always thought about having vote and elections. But after the experience of 1930 local elections, we were afraid that we would lose two things. Islamic influence would, would, would penetrate political process. Second, women would lose its position that it gained under the Republic. But when we came to 1950, he said, we felt confident that now we can do it. Now we have achieved and Republic succeeded. Well, of course, in any was not a very good clairvoyant, I must say, didn't see the future. The fears remain. Anyway, so this is... Now, I want to talk about... So we understand what we mean by modernity, Turkish modernity and all that. Now I want to go and look at foreign policy. The whole modernity experience is the westernization process. Everything started with the Tanzimat reforms, 1840. Amazing, Tanzimat people are not paying enough attention. It is a remarkable, remarkable, remarkable revolution in Turkish politics, which meant People are all ethnic religious groups will participate in the parliament. You see a parliament which is most multi-ethnic. Actually, the highest representation in the parliament in terms of MPs was from the Jewish population. Per capita representation was highest among the Jews because they were mostly urban and rural people were not counted. So, we have Armenian origin and Orthodox origin, foreign secretaries, powerful people, and all the judges, very important, very important Armenian and, and Orthodox, I don't want to call them Greek, I'll tell you why not, population in, in the administrative position. It is a remarkable, I don't think anywhere existed in the world at the time, 18, say, 60, 70, such a multi-ethnic, multi-religious political system. And I really admire and yearn for that. My fourth point will be how that was destroyed. Okay, my third point, foreign policy. Modernity and westernization was hand in hand. When the Republic was established in 1923, the first thing they did was sending students to Europe to study. My father was a beneficiary of that, and his father was a beneficiary of that. In 19... First thing, before they built the railways, sending students to Europe, not Al-Azhar or Egypt. And the thing they did, Kemal built a strong intellectual wall between itself and Arabia. 
there were quite an, quite a large lodge, I don't know. But anyway, a good group of Ottomanist Arabs wanting to connect with the Kemalist movement. 1921, when Britain occupied Iraq and the French were not yet in Syria, the rebellion against the occupying colonial powers, they wanted to join up with Kemal. Kemal's example was very good for them and they were all speaking Turkish, they are the Ottoman trained people, and wanted to join Kemal in different ways. In fact, when mandate was declared in Palestine, when you look at the cabinet minutes, they are talking about the Turks might come back if we don't declare the mandate now. I don't know how sincere they were, but that's what they were pushing. So, Kemal turned his back. Had nothing to do with Arabia, nothing to the origin of Islam. It was very important. The Turkish today's connection starts as late as 1985, you know. At the time, it was looking at the West. And must correct one point that you made about the Greeks. It's not the earthquake. Already in 1925, Turkey and Greeks were best friends. Because they were all afraid of the Mussolini trying to invade both Greece and this, you know, and this idea that extension of Italy. So the Turks and the Greeks got to Venizelos and Italy became best friends. They were the enemies two years earlier. British ambassador was there next to Ataturk all the time. Very close relation with Britain because that was the world power. You're going to be, you know, you want to build your nation. You want the world power on your side, you know, more against them. Keep Russians with a distance, don't offend them. Keep the Russians away and keep the Arabs out. And really, it was a pity because there were brilliant Arabist Ottomans at the time. There's a wonderful new book came out by five minutes. One minute. <laughs> I'm finishing. Last minute. Give me two. This is it. All right, we understand. I wrote that one minute ago. But I just saw it. When does it start? When I see you? No. In the court is when just, I know about just it. Just run with it. All right, thank you very it. much. Good Conclude. Modernization and westernization started in 1840. They imitate the French in 1840. They imitate the French in the Republic. And Britain is too far. All right. Last point. Very important. Very important. Now, when you come in 1922, Lausanne Treaty, exchange of population. Now, with the Republic, you want a homogeneous population. You don't want a population to... Volonté Générale requires a population of a bit homogeneous quality. All right. So, when they did, exchange the, the, the Orthodox, the Romans, not Greeks, Rome. They send them to Greece, one million went, 300,000 Muslims, supposed Turks, came to Turkey. That is when population was unified, and it was the greatest deprivation that occurred. That was the cost of the nation-state and the war of nationalism. Not very understandable. They had been fighting for 14 years. 14 years, yes. They had been fighting 14 years. And very importantly, British and the French were using the Christians against Ottoman authority. Actively, actively using them. I know it's my personal family history how it was. The Tanzimat reforms could not survive when there was the British intervention. Ataturk met, when he was in Syria, he met with some British authorities. He told them, 
You take Arabia, we don't need Arabia. You take them, let's make independent peace. British wouldn't take it, I'm very surprised. They have said a lot of blood. But they already had decided to dismember the empire. They didn't want to stay only with Arabia, they had to be. It had to be broken. They were fed up with these bloody Turks sitting in Constantinople. And they're, we're going to give it to the Russians. They wouldn't do it. Of course, Ataturk's prediction came true at the end. At the end, Turkey survived and Arabia. So that they could have done that three years before the war ended. A lot of people's lives would be saved. But to repeat, that is the great cost of the Republic, is to lose the heterogeneity which really exists. They did not recognize. Turks today do not recognize the heterogeneity. We talked about. They don't realize that Turkey is the most mixed country in the world, more than the United States. There is not a single Turk from Central Asia. All these guys are going to come up from Central Asia, you think? A thousand years ago. How are you going to want a horseback? How many horses do you need? You know? Anyway, well, that's fiction. But that is what they have lost that richness. And indeed, we lost. Finish. Thank you very much. <laughs> Okay, thank you very much. Uh, how many mics do we have? Two. Great. Are they on different sides? Because what I'm going to do to try and get as many questions in as possible, I'm just going to take a whole bunch of questions. Then I'm going to go back to our panel, and you can pick and choose whichever you want to engage with. Perhaps not all of them. <laughs> um, and I'll also try and pick out a few from our online participants. So, hands up for the... and, and uh, Okay, that's one over there. Can we get the mic over to towards the back row? There are two questions there towards the back, so let's take both of those two. First you and then uh, Kira just behind. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much, panel. That was really interesting. Who are you? Uh, I'm Essen Seren from the LSE Grantham Research Institute on okay. Climate Change and the Environment. My question is actually really uh, closely linked to my affiliation. I wanted to ask why environmental issues in Turkey always come as this afterthought or almost this formality to keep international allies happy. Like Turkey always has these daily problems to worry about. People are poor, we have inflation. and We do have to worry about these things, but actually tackling climate change could be a very valid economic strategy too if we could just start thinking a bit more long term. Uh, the industry that's presented to us to be proud of is Turkey's military technologies and I don't believe that's all we have to offer the world. I want to see Turkey exporting solar panels, sustainable fabric, green hydrogen. Um, so I guess I want to ask why and does the panel think this will change anytime soon? Thanks. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Can we pass the mic a couple of rows back to Kira? In the meantime, please start waving your hand so I can get ready. Okay, so we have a question down here, a question in. So if we can get the second mic, yeah. Go ahead. Great, um, thank you very much. My name is Kira Gardzu Katsuyani. I'm a, a postdoctoral researcher at the European Institute. I wanted to ask a question about the last speaker's last point, which is about the, the multi-ethnic um, past of Turkey. And this is a story that we don't, we don't know very widely in the West generally. It's not a story that we, we tell and we hear often about this kind of, you know, multi-ethnic, perhaps tolerant past of the Ottoman Empire, um, also compared to kind of the Western European context at the time. It's also something that is a characteristic of the Greek cities of the north. I'm Greek, 
right? So in recent times, it's also a story that we don't know, right? We're used to thinking of the history of those cities as, you know, in terms of Greek national history, but actually the mayor of um, Salonika, the former mayor of Salonika recently tried to retell the history of Salonika as a history of this vibrant cosmopolitan city, right? In, so I was wondering what role does this story of the multi-ethnic kind of past of tolerance among different kind of religions and cultures what role does this story play in Turkish discourse today and is anyone is any politician trying to tell that story again great so uh, I hope you know them all down we have more yeah go ahead uh, hello my name is Zara and I'm doing my master's in international migration and public policy at the European Institute so my question is in regards to the migration kind of diplomacy that Turkey does with European Union and European countries. How do you, inv um, how, how do you think this will evolve given that the crisis is ongoing? Um, and what, what the future looks like for Turkey and the European Union in the context of migration? Thank you so much. And could we get the mic forward to the gentleman in the front row here and then I'll add a couple of online questions, and then we'll go back to the panelists. Yes, hello, thank you. Uh, my name is George Muir, and I am from the University of Buckingham, though my question has nothing to do with what I'm doing there. Um, I was interested in this first speaker, Professor Yaprak Gursoy, um, and she's, she's calling for what loosely you could call a, a new beginning sort of emerging out of the out of the earthquake so, so when you go back to the first beginning in the creation of the republic how important was Kamal Ataturk in creating that uh, in in creating the new beginning of the republic and do you now have the similar political leadership which might give rise to the kind of new beginning you were referring to Okay, um, I'm going to add a couple online and then people with their hands up will take you in the second round, okay? And the panelists, please be quick in your responses so we can get another round in. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. I have here Ilbe Choban, and excuse my pronunciation, I'm working on it, um, from the Middle East Technical University from Turkey, wondering uh, if the opposition wins, will there be a new social contract? Uh, do you think so the social contract based on secular and democratic values has been decaying? Um, we also have a question from our colleague in the IR department, Katerina Delacoura, has a question for Laurent. Many of the famous Islamists until recent times were or are poets. Is their ideological anti-modernism reflected in their style of poetry? Um, okay, so That's can we... What about her question? Um, I'm, I'm concerned about how many questions you can all recall, but if you're happy to take a couple more, we can do that. Okay, let's have a couple more. No, no, I was wondering, the lady asked a question that I would like to address to that. You, well, it, you'll, get, you'll get your chance in just a moment. Good enough. Right. <laughs> you didn't mention okay, well, let's, I would like to respond yeah, to that. Okay, great. Well, let's go in reverse order. 
and start with you because I can see your itching. Could you stand up? Could you up so I can see your face and talk to your face? <laughs> Thank you. You're right, sir. Today there is no recognition of the multi-ethnic background. I was the first person who came on public television in Turkey about a year ago. I said, I am a true Turk, none of you are. Because I am one, Kurd, one quarter Georgian, half Kurdish, and half Greek. That adds up more than 4%. <laughs> and I said, I am the true Turk. That's what a Turk is. Greek, Georgian, Kurdish, and a bit of Albanian. A little bit of something else, I'm sure. First one to say, people didn't twitch, but everybody understood my point. And it was in the public television. Thank you. Now, there is, I hope it will come back one day. But there is that whitewashing or blackwashing, black painting happening everywhere, also abroad about the Ottoman century. You know, the language used about the Ottoman sick man is that, you know, the leader, la, la, la. Enough, thank you. I hope it's responded. Yeah. To Saloniki, by the way, Saloniki had the Ottoman mayor in Saloniki was replaced when the Greeks occupied Saloniki the, during the Balkan Wars, Masbeti Didada 11. Then they replaced him with a Greek mayor who was not competent. They brought back the old Ottoman mayor back. His picture is there in the mayor's office. It is my wife's uncle. <laughs> His picture is there. Osman Said Bey. Thank you. Great, thank you very much. Laurent, over to you. Uh, yes, uh, so the, 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 the question of, of the anti-modernism in, 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 in the poetry of, of uh, important uh, Islamist poets such as, I suppose, Sezai Karakoc, um, Jahid Sarifolu, uh, Neji Fazal, Kisakurek, Nuri Pakdil, and, and others. Um, I think we, we need to approach this in, in two ways. Do we find traces of this anti-modernism in their poetry itself? I mean, beside the, the discursive side, if we look at the form, I think we, we see very interesting things happening, actually, in, 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 their, in their poetry, where they try to, 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 to combine a, a, a free verse approach um, I mean, for 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 Karakochsari, for etc. However, with the with the sonorities of the classical tradition and of the Arus metrical prosody, in their choice of words as well, they try to 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 merge the 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 the, the, the new Turkish of the 1920s and the 1930s, including Öztürkçe, so the pure Turkish, with a more Ottomanized vocabulary. And I think it, it's very much part of, of a message they are trying to, 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 to convey uh, about the, 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 the validity and the significance of the Islamic message in the, modern, in the contemporary world. So by, by, by accepting uh, up to a point the new language, yet um, uh, spreading a more religiously conservative message, they, 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 they try to, to, to point to the relevance of that message. However, here I should say as well that what they are doing uh, is actually not so different from what, let's say, French Catholic uh, poets 
uh, were doing in the 1920s, 1930s. And very interestingly, for instance, a poet such as Cézai Karakoc uh, translates a, a, a French Catholic poet such as Paul Claudel and even religious poetry from Paul Claudel. So I think uh, it's important not to look at these poets simply as, as Islamist poets, but also to look at the connections uh, with other forms of, of uh, with uh, religiously engaged poets in Europe and elsewhere. It's not simply an, an Islamic or, or Islamist uh, phenomena. I think I should stop here, but it Fantastic. deserves a book. Great, thank you. Uh, Shunla, start with you. Thank you. Um, I'll just start with the question on migration and then move on to the question on environment and sustainability. Um, definitely uh, migration and uh, issues related to refugees will continue to re uh, dominate the Turkey-EU agenda. Um, Turkey houses uh, the greatest, according to young figures, the greatest number of refugees with a more than 4 million people official figure. And um, this is, if you think about it, like 10 times population of Malta almost. And we already had significant problems associated with social, economic, political problems associated with integration. I have experts on migration in the audience. Um, but now what is going to be even trickier is after the earthquakes, of course. Now Turkey has its own displaced people and will have, um, I think it's going to be one of the greatest challenges to deal now with, with both issues, actually. Uh, I'm also very happy about uh, the question about the environment and sustainability uh, because I, I talked about the past, but looking into the future, I mean, Turkey is in a very uh, complex neighborhood, laden with political conflicts, wars. Uh, but I think when I look into the future, uh, the challenge also lies, in addition to hard security issues, um, to what has been categorized as soft security issues, including environment sustainability. I think the reason why these issues have been neglected uh, for such a long time has been they have been seen as problems of the future and not have been uh, in, con in sequence with the election cycles. Whereas now, as we see today, um, actually, we're confronting with all of those problems now, actually. And if, according to the World Economic Forum, top five short-term risks, short and medium term, include extreme weather events, livelihood crisis, climate action failure, social cohesion erosion, and infectious diseases. And again, among the top ten major threats for the future, environmental ones constitute uh, the core ones. So I think looking into the future, issues like sustainability, environment, energy, food, water nexus are going to be vital. And um, also I think we need to work harder both on environmental issues and sustainability as well as uh, issues which will require more international collaboration in a very fragmented world, which again will be uh, the key challenges, uh, but I think they are going to be uh, the undeniable and definitely vital parts uh, of our future security looking into the next century. So thank you very much for the question as well. Thanks. Yapra? 
Thank you. I will try to answer your question. First, thanks uh, for, uh, for that. Um, yes, I called for a new beginning, but it's not entirely new, right? I mean, this is what I was trying to say, that actually we have something old that we can carry into uh, the new. And um, do we need another Kemal Ataturk um, to bring uh, that uh, stage uh, to us? I don't think so. Well, for two reasons. The first reason is that, unlike what we were taught, um, Kemal Ataturk was not alone. Um, so we tend to personalize him. This is what, um, what the uh, discourse uh, was, sort of, that this one strong man did everything on his own. The truth is um, he was supported by um, his um, military colleagues, uh, the bureaucracy, uh, people in uh, local Anatolia, also part of bureaucracy. Um, there were people um, that we know of, um, such as Kazım Karabeki, Refet Pasha, uh, Rauf Bey, um, Fethi Okyar, and they were later dismissed uh, because uh, they disagreed uh, with the way that Atatürk was actually running uh, the country. So they were after more liberal, both in economic sense and in political sense. They were, um, they were in favor of a more liberal uh, system. But they were there at the, at the beginning, and there was conflict at the beginning among these uh, uh, people um, as well. Um, so um, the next phase will have to be a collective effort too. If we look for one single person to achieve all of this, you know, all of the, the future with all of its problems, um, it's going to be an impossible task. And it is, um, it is wrong to expect one single person to deliver all of that. And this will uh, bring me to the second question that was uh, asked online. Um, Will the opposition, um, uh, if they win um, in the next elections, will there be a new contract? There has to be a new contract. And that is going to be a collective effort. Um, yes, it's, it's, it's not happening very easily or smoothly, um, and things go wrong sometimes, uh, but it's there. And this is one of the things that uh, give us hope. So instead of looking for one leader, uh, we have to look for the collective and enriching the collective. So the collective is not yet full, it's not perfect, uh, but it can become stronger and it can uh, approach perfection without uh, you know, um, achieving that, obviously. And with our efforts, with grassroots efforts, not in a top-down approach, but in a bottom-up approach. We have seen, I think, with the earthquake, um, the possibility of uh, bottom-up approaches. In the Gezi protests, we have seen that as well. So that is the combination that we should be looking for. Right, so um, our panelists have been very disciplined. We have five minutes left. I'd like to get two more questions in from the audience. Um, and Farouk would like to respond to Yaprak. So I want to respond to Yaprak now, though. You want to do it now? Uh, do you, are you going to forego your participation in the final round of responses? Yes, I do. To, to do this? Yeah. Okay, well, exchange. go for it. Go for it. Exchange. I disagree with her because two things. Two things. It is remarkable. I don't like, I don't like either, let's see. But Kemal was a very exceptional character. And he is when you need him. When you read his speeches and his writing and all that, he was so much immersed in the French Republic. Karabekir was not. 
Karabeker was another Islamic devoted Muslim conservative fellow, if you read his memoirs. And one third of the parliament opposed the republic, you remember. Now, the ones who were very important, Inanna was very important to build the new state. Kemal didn't do that. Yes, there are other sort of things. But ideologically, I'm amazed at this age. When I read it, I even discover more now than before. There is an exceptional person in understanding. We're not living in France, just secondary literature. So immersed in the Third Republic. He even talk about individualism. None of the other characters had any idea about that. So there is, there is the other characters are following Kemal. They loved him. You know, you read in you know, his letters from Lausanne, you think these are, if I read them, it's so says, I missed your beautiful eyes, he said. You know, the most conservative character, I'm sure they did not have anything sort of unacceptable among them, you know. Amazing. He charmed everybody. Amazing character. I mean, I hate to do that. I, you know, I don't believe in this exceptionality, but yes, others contribute. Last point. Very similar to Lenin-Stalin relationship. Inanna was the Stalin. He built the new state, like Stalin built the Soviet Union. Lenin was the inspiration. Lenin had that. They have, in a way, similar, of course, the content of all that very different. But there is that difference. Stalin can never be Lenin. Without Lenin, you won't have the revolution. So, that's all. Just thank you very much. I exchange, <laughs> agreed? Yeah, yeah. That's, no, I guess it, it's, I mean, it's a deal. Right, we have time for one question and probably one answer at this stage, because at 8 o'clock we turn into a pumpkin. So, uh, uh, so there was a question over there, actually there are two questions, and we have like 30 seconds to reply to them. So please, um, let's hear the questions, uh, and, and we'll see what we can do in the time left. Um, hi, my name is Mina. I'm doing a, a Master's in Social and Cultural Psychology. Um, my question was, um, so... How is the acceleration of like you know modernization um, in like early Turkish history? Like, do you believe that that's the reason why we're facing problems today? Is it like the acceleration of the modernity and kind of the uh, suppression of the uh, like the Islamic community? Is that why you know we're facing our problems today? That's kind of I think the essence. And can we um, you know? Chuck the microphone to the middle of the row quickly, and then we'll have the, the last question. Thank you very Thank you. much. Uh, my name is Aisha Jaran Tarnthaler. I'm a medical doctor at the St. Thomas's Hospital. Uh, it's very unfortunate that I'm the last person to ask this complicated question, but I still want to ask it to Professor Yilmaz uh, about the position or your perception of the Turkey uh, in the positioning of the Turkey, actually at the uh, Ukrainian and Russian war. Fantastic, thank you so much. Uh, as it's International Women's Day, I'll, I'll let Yaprak and I think we're, we're the most response. suitable people. Uh, yeah. Well, that worked out then, so, so go gave, away. He's right to speak or to answer uh, <laughs> the Great. last question. Uh, I can go ahead and answer your What's question. Yes, I agree that, um, you know, it's that conflict between secularism and um, religion is part of the reason why we're here today. 
Um, but the, the way that I think about it, and we can talk more in the reception uh, because we are running out of time, that at this, at this point in time, everyone, every group in Turkey has been um, a victim of something, right? So the conflict has gone all around. So um, this is why it's time for a new beginning, because we have all been victims. Yeah. Now I need another one and a half hours <laughs> to respond to the last question, <laughs> which is my own area of expertise. But very briefly, um, again, it's a very precarious neutrality in a very difficult situation. On the one hand, uh, Turkey is very heavily dependent on Russia for its energy interests. On the other hand, it strongly condemns uh, the Ukrainian invasion and, by the way, supplies uh, significantly helpful drones uh, to the Ukrainian government. Uh, but by maintaining this relatively neutral position, it also emerged as a country which can kind of negotiate between the two, such as the grain deal. So um, I think it is very precarious as the conflict deepens um, to maintain. Uh, but I think this has been the strategy of Turkey to kind of balance out. On the one hand, it's very strong uh, economic ties with Russia, with also very complex dynamics in the Black Sea uh, region. So that's a very brief answer to an extremely complex question. <laughs> Okay, thank you so much. Okay, well, um, we're, we're out of time. Um, just a couple of things to say um, before we wrap up. As you know, this event was part of the Turkish Week, which will continue until Friday. Today's International Women's Day, and so tomorrow there will be an event at 6.30 to present the achievements of prominent female researchers from Turkey and how they've contributed to science and technology in the UK. The event will be followed by a photography exhibition and a drinks reception in the new academic building. So you can get information about that event on the Contemporary Turkish Studies website. And for those of you who are here, um, there is now a reception outside the auditorium, but before Enjoying that, can I just thank all of you for attending, uh, all the people who attended online, all of you who asked questions, but of course uh, all of our panelists for contributing to such a, a fascinating event. Uh, thanks to everybody involved. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.